I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturepedic.com. That's naturepedic.com. I'd like to welcome everyone back to our next episode of Parent Talk. For those who've been uh, steady listeners, you'll know we've already shared with you our introductory thoughts on how to manage expectations when they don't quite fit your child. And we're really excited about this episode because uh, we're going to manage expectations for older children, where we really get into the whole question of what schools expect from your children, how the world expects your child to develop. We talked last time about what to expect when you send your infant and your toddler to preschool or to childcare. So now we're going to move into the really old grades, like pre-K. <laughs> you know, now we're really getting to, you know, the old men and women of the preschool. And I'm going to give you an example of something that happens in multiple schools throughout this country. So let's say that Danny is four, four and a half years old and he's in pre-K. And at the conference, his parents are told that he's not writing his name yet. His parents, of course, are concerned. I mean, the teacher brings it up as something that isn't happening. And when they ask what to do, the teacher just says, well, work with him at home. And this is one of those expectations that there can be an expectation that a child between four and five will begin to write his or her name, but you can't take it in isolation. You can't just say he writes his name or he doesn't. There's so many other factors that we have to talk about. And I'm hoping that this is going to help parents when they look at what their child is or isn't doing and try to figure out what the next best step is. Sometimes the next best step is to do nothing, but just let the child get a little bit older. That's my favorite. (laughs) You know, so many times when we were talking, Susan, I wish we had the ability to be in the room with everyone who's listening. I'm imagining that right now, everyone in the room is saying, oh my gosh, this has happened to me so many times and in so many different ways. If it's not writing, it's something else. And I also want listeners to know as we go through our discussion of this and other situations through early education, These issues are good throughout the entire time of the child's schooling. These expectation mismatches are just rampant everywhere at all ages in school. They really are. And this can happen even if the school is a good fit in other ways or a school with an outstanding reputation. But let's see some of the questions that Danny's parents can ask. First of all, they can ask the teacher, how does Danny hold a pencil or a marker or a crayon? By pre-K, most children have what they call a stable tripod grasp. That means they're basically holding the pen or pencil exactly like most adults do. But if your child at four is still grasping it with like a fist, what they call a palmer grasp, then you could say maybe this isn't about his not being ready to write. It could be really a motor thing that he's not holding the pencil right. And maybe those other steps have to be filled in. In fact, what I've noticed, and when I was the director of the preschool, I saw a huge shift when we understood that babies were healthier sleeping on their back. I noticed that I was getting an increase in children who were not holding pens and pencils correctly by the time they were four or five. And this is because if you think about when my babies all slept on their stomachs, that's what we were told to do, they must have had a million instances of pushing up on their crib mattress or on the floor. So they were strengthening those little hand and finger muscles. Now you understand why another reason why tummy time is so important for these babies who sleep on their back. So this is something that I actually saw so frequently 
And many children just needed to see an OT or a physical therapist for a short period of time to work on some specific exercises for those muscles. So that could be one thing that's going on. Maybe your child isn't holding the marker or the crayon properly. Well, I will say this about grasp. So, you know, we talk about palmar grasp, you mentioned grabbing it like a fist. So one way to think about that is most people, when they grab a rope, when they're climbing up a rope, that's how they grab a rope with their whole hand. And that tripod grasp you're talking about involves several fingers in your thumb holding a pen or pencil, like almost like people use chopsticks, a lot more finger and less hand, if you will, control. Now, what's interesting about this is some people struggle with learning how to write or doing the motor work of turning an idea into a movement of their hand that generates letters on a page and they have beautiful grasps. And other people I know write beautifully and they have grasps for much like that grabbing a rope. I don't look as well developed. So the grasp alone doesn't tell you for sure if there's a problem. If there is a problem, you're more likely to have a hand rather than a finger control of the pen, but it's not a sure thing. So you can't just look at the hand and tell. The best specialist to help you figure this out, of course, is occupational therapy. You mentioned OT and PT, but OT are are the people really specialized in helping kids learn how to write. In fact, there's a lot of pediatric occupational therapists who only help kids to write. That's all they do. Right. And going back to the stages of development, that's another thing that I would ask parents to look at when they're looking at their child's writing. First of all, when we talk about just writing a name, we're really not talking about writing. You were talking about whether you can put ideas into words on paper. But in reality, children don't write their name at the beginning. They draw their name. They really want to write their name. You know, it's them. It's really an extension of themselves. And what they're doing is that they're copying it. They're thinking about it. It's sort of a gestalt thing. They're looking at it as a whole, not even as separate letters so much, but they're drawing it. They can ask the teacher, does my child draw other things? But even more importantly, are they making symbols or signs that look or resemble writing, but they're not actual letters? You can see where children's writing goes from just sort of very random scribbles to things that look like more controlled little circles, to things that look like little shapes, to then they actually evolve into letters. If he's a four and a half, you should begin to see, if not actual letters, things that sort of resemble resemble writing or look like little shapes or symbols or signs. And then you know that your child just needs a little bit more time to evolve into making actual letters. Most people don't realize that writing evolves in exactly the same way as almost all developmental steps in a child. You don't expect a child to pull to a stand before they can sit. We know that these are motor things that go in pretty specific order. And most children, some of them go rushing through certain stages, but they do usually hit all of those stages. The same is true about writing. And that's something I don't think that most parents know. In fact, I wonder if most teachers know it. And you mentioned also that people aren't writing so much. Here's another tip that I give to parents. If you want your child to pick up a pen and start writing, instead of putting your list on your phone, make your grocery list on a piece of paper and let your child see you writing and checking things off. All those things help a child model this really important skill. If they're moving along in that evolution of writing, Sometimes all they need is a little bit of time. 
if you have a child that really refuses to even pick up a marker or a pen or a pencil, never colors, doesn't want to draw anything, it's not likely, but there is something called motor dyspraxia, which could be affecting the child's ability. It's like the brain isn't telling the fingers, giving that important message, pick the crayon up and start doing something with it. I'm just giving a spectrum of things that could be going on, but it isn't just a simple matter of saying your child can't write your name. There's a huge continuum of not writing your name. <laughs> it depends on where your child is at on that continuum, whether intervention with an OT is necessary or if it's just a matter of giving a little more practice and a little more time. And this touches on one of our big themes, right, Susan, on this whole question about expectations, because what we're really talking about is someone in the family or in this situation, more typically the school, raises an alarm. And then the question is, is the alarm raised because the child's going along their normal and very robust developmental pathway and just haven't hit the uh, milestones that the teacher expects them to hit yet? Or is there something keeping them from making further progress? That's the key. And that's sort of like trying to foretell the future. Are they not picking up the crayon now because they rather do something else and they're fully capable of picking up the crayon? Or is their future being foretold that they're going to have trouble writing? And you really don't know until the future happens which way this is going. But that's what you're up against when teachers raise these questions. Is the expectation not being met a sign of a long-term issue or just something that's part of normal development? Now, in terms of writing, I think it's important for our listeners to know there's two things that can go wrong with it. There's dyspraxia, which you mentioned, and then there's dysgraphia. And one of them, the mind has trouble coming up with something to do. No one can do any of those scribbles or make any of those letters unless the mind is thinking about what scribble or letter they want to make. So some kids have trouble coming up with an idea to write about or scribble about. On the other hand, it could be that you have all sorts of things you want to write about, but your brain has trouble moving your hand. It has an idea of what to do, but it can't get the hand to do it. So one is a motor apraxia, the other is called dysgraphia. In both of them, you'll see kids stall in their development towards writing, and then you never know. Is that because they just aren't interested and are capable, or whether they have one of these dyspraxia or dysgraphias? Dyspraxias and dysgraphias, by the way, aren't as rare as you might expect. So we see, in this is for older kids, not three- and four-year-olds, but later in life, let's say third, fourth grade, if someone's really struggling to write at that point, often we'll see a dyspraxia or dysgraphia present. At age three or four, if someone's not interested, it's more likely they're just not interested and there's no actual impairment. Exactly. And that sort of blends into another thing that parents will often hear at conferences. And that is that their child doesn't recognize letters. They don't seem to know the names of the letters. They don't know beginning sounds. Now, this is a comment that I would have hoped would only be coming in like first grade class. In a pre-K class, although this is often said in a pre-K class, we really have to say, is this an appropriate comment when you're talking about pre-K children? We keep pushing down when children start to read, when children should recognize beginning sounds and letters till it really becomes a completely inappropriate expectation. There are many pre-K kids who know all of their letters and recognize them and they even know uppercase and lowercase the difference between them, and some of them probably even know beginning sounds. But if your four-year-old is not recognizing all the letters, this is not a reason for you to run out and panic and get them a tutor. This is a time to ask some more questions. First of all, if a teacher is saying they're not doing the worksheets, you might want to ask, why are you doing worksheets in the pre-K? And I know that some of these parents are going to say, but of course you do worksheets in pre-K. 
Well, the NAEYC, the National Association for the Education of Young Children, they have a very, very clear policy statement about the use of worksheets. They absolutely believe in play-based model that when children are forced to sit down and do paper and pencil tasks, they look like they're learning them in the moment. But the research is very clear that these children actually do less well in these school-related subjects as opposed to children who were allowed to explore on their own. And it's very hard for parents to accept this because what they see is little Freddie who can not only recite all the alphabet backwards, forwards, and starting in the middle, but he also reads certain sight words. Well, it makes them feel like, oh, what's wrong with my child? There's nothing wrong with your child. In fact, if a teacher says to you they don't recognize their letters, let's see, is it just not recognizing letters? Or is this really, like you were suggesting, part of a bigger constellation of issues that a parent does need to have have some concern? So here are some of the questions a parent may ask. Does my child have friends? How do they play with friends? Oh, yes, your child is the most popular kid in the class. Everyone wants to sit next to him at lunch. Does my child approach play and toys appropriately? In other words, can they get into the housekeeping and take on a dramatic role or pretend play? Can he take care of his own body? Is he using the toilet? Can he get his coat on? Does he recognize his belongings? How are his motor skills? Oh, yes, he rides a tricycle. He can hop and jump and even skip. How's his language? Oh, yes, he can tell a story from beginning to end. Well, if you've got all of these skills and the child is doing well in these areas, then you might just say that this is just not his time or her time to learn those letters. If there are other concerns, if when you ask those questions, you can say the child is isolated, he never does pretend play, he only goes to one toy and plays with it in exactly the same way again and again, then you might have some reasons for concerns. What we're trying to say here is that most children are going to be absolutely fine, that not knowing your letters in the pre-K is an indication of absolutely nothing except that they don't know their letters in pre-K. But you need to look at the bigger picture. You've inspired me to bring out something that's one of my favorite observations around development, and that is the greatest variability in how one kid compares to another is seen at the average age of when a skill is acquired. So that sounds complicated, but it's pretty simple. So it turns out the average age, take a million kids who are born, what's the average age they learn to sit? Turns out you add it all up, it's seven months old. Well, you're going to see the biggest variety of who's able to sit at seven months old. You're not going to see any variety at birth. Nobody at birth sits. And you're not going to see any variety at 12 months of age. Everybody at 12 months sits. So it's nobody uniform at birth, everybody uniform at one. It's all over the map at seven months. So whenever you get close to the average age of when someone in a population will begin to be able to do something, then you're going to see this kid over here doing it well, this kid over here not doing anything at all. And you're wondering, is this one better than the other? No, you can't avoid it. It's an absolute rule of uh, the universe that around the average age of learning something, you see wild variability. You see it in walking. The average age of walking is 13 months. So nobody's walking at two months. Everybody's walking at five years. It's all over the map at 13 months. There's a lot of one-year-olds who just sit there. But they're thinking. They're probably profound thinkers. <laughs> yeah. And those thinkers eventually walk and the ones who are running around eventually think. Um, we hope. Um, in this case, your child's neighbor in preschool might be drawing out all sorts of letters, even writing their name, and your child hasn't even made one effort to draw a letter. But the average age of beginning to write letters, that average age where you see the greatest variability is somewhere between three and a half and four. Some developmental societies say three and a half. The American Academy of Pediatrics says around four. 
the main point I'm really trying to get across here is the average age is almost worthless because the average age is the age at which you can least predict what your child's going to be able to do. I know. Isn't that funny? But we do get sort of caught up with that average thing, don't we? But I do want to say that if there is like a constellation of concerns and you see that your child is not playing with toys appropriately, can't make friends, not caring for their body in the way that most four-year-olds are, then it might be the time for intervention or at least for an evaluation. Assessment of a child doesn't hurt them. It's not invasive, what we're talking about. And if there is something that can be done, the earlier that you get intervention, the better it is for your child. There's a federal law that if your child is three years or older, you can go to your school district. Even if your child is not enrolled in a public school, you can go to your school district and ask for an evaluation of your child. And that could be speech, it can be a physical, it can be cognitive, or it could be everything, what they call an MFE, a multifactored evaluation, just to put that out there. Arthur, so that people know that those resources are available to them. So that's exactly right. Three and up, everyone who lives in the United States has access to free evaluation. And it's part of something called the IEP process. And MFE is the multifactorial evaluation, which you refer to as the evaluation part. But there is a free program for zero to three also. It's not the IEP, it's IEFP. And uh, basically that is run by early intervention programs through departments of health in your community, usually through your county. So you call your Department of Health. If you're under three, you can go to the school district in which you reside, three and up. And either way, you get a free evaluation. Absolutely. And it's always better to be sure. And if there is something that needs to be addressed, the earlier, the better. These are dual expectations we have for families and helpful hints. One is, if there's a worry, yeah, check it out. The other is, if there's a worry, it may turn out everything's fine. Well, there's no question that everything can turn out fine. <laughs> it, it, it does in most cases, happily. There's really a lot to say, isn't there, about a oh, kids yeah. in preschool. So I just want to touch on with kindergarten and first grade. You know, right now, there is this idea that there's something wrong with a child entering kindergarten who doesn't oh read. We really need to be careful when we say that children are reading when they enter kindergarten, when they may just be the products of a school that did a lot of memory, rote drilling, or parents who take them and and are giving, you know, showing them these sight words, you know, before they go to bed at night. I don't want parents to panic because their child isn't reading when they enter kindergarten, or for that matter, even entering first grade. In Scandinavia, which has a much higher literacy rate than the United States, they do not start formal reading instruction until the age of seven. And here we're starting it at four, four and a half, five. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Now, of course, children in Scandinavia, they do read before they're seven, and they're reading naturally. They're reading because that's where they are in their development. When we get to the equivalent of what we call third grade in the United States, their literacy rate there is higher than it is in the United States. In other words, their children are at a higher reading level than the children in the United States. We can actually make it more difficult for children to become good readers when we frustrate them by enforcing them to read when they're five or six before they're really ready to move on to that next step. This actually, I think, is a pretty serious issue for the U.S. I think that we're actually not promoting literacy in the way that we really want to. It turns out another deep fact of child development is anxiety doesn't help them develop. Yeah. So, and, and there's a vast national anxiety in America. We're fearful that our kids won't end up with good jobs. And that could be from international competition. It could be from American decline in various industries, whatever. There's a panic almost that, you know, if our kid doesn't get ahead early on, they'll never make it. 
So we've seen that in the pressure for kids to perform on uh, proficiency tests around the country. And we've seen the transformation of childhood from a time of playful learning into a high pressure cooker forced learning environment. So I just played in kindergarten. I didn't do any formal learning in kindergarten. And, you know, I, I turned out okay, sort of literate. But there are no kindergartens like that left. They don't exist anymore. And instead, we're seeing what used to be in second, not just first, but second grade, now being imposed on kids in kindergarten, including homework and that, that forced sort of pressure to read. Now, here's where the law of averages really messes things up. Because remember, I said the average age is where things are the most diverse and variable. We don't even have a specific age where kids begin to read. You take a million kids, it's too diverse to even come up with one age. But somewhere around age six or so, about half of kids are being able to read. That means there's half of all humanity is really getting a hold of reading at age seven, you know, over six. Okay, sure, there's kids who are learning to read at age four and five. But you impose an expectation as we get back to our overall theme of the danger of misplaced expectation. If we drop that age further and further, we're going to get to a point where everybody fails. I, I agree with you. We're really sort of in trouble on this in the United States. And I think, you know, one of our major parenting tips for this whole episode of Parenting Talk is that when it comes to schooling, there really are misplaced expectations. There are expectations placed upon children that turn out really quite well, quite excellent, but they're just not at the point of their development to meet those expectations. And so we have to be careful to determine if there's a problem or not, help them if there is, reassure if not. But realize our kids are under a lot of pressure these days, especially as they approach age five and six. Isn't that sad to think that if you're four and five, that you're already failed because you haven't learned how to read? I just want to end this podcast by saying that most of the time, if you're seeing what they're saying in the school doesn't fit my child, it may be absolutely true that expectation is not appropriate for your child, that the assessment is lacking, but not your child. But on the other hand, we do want parents to listen to what teachers' concerns are. And if there's a bigger picture of concerns, always get an early assessment and intervention if necessary. Well done. I totally agree. So I'm glad we help people with their expectations. You know, meeting expectations is a difficult thing across life and might as well get it right at the beginning, right? Absolutely. We'll see you next time, Arthur. Bye-bye. Thanks, Susan. Take care, all. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.